I'm back in college. It's, it's the truth. I moved in on Monday. Drove up, you know, two and a quarter hours, two and a half hours all on my own. Had a full tank of gas. Didn't feel like the car was going to break, which is way better than my old car, which did break when I was going back from college. Uh, in the middle of the night. That one, at least. So it's kind of fun not to have to deal with a car, you know, that's literally dying as, as you're driving it. Feels a lot safer, I'll say that much. But the movie was good, at least. And the first day of in-person classes for me was literally 18 months to the day since I last had an in-person class. It was kind of crazy. Uh, the Kind of the milestone at that point. My first class back in person a year and a half exactly to my prior one. All my classes in 2020, 2021 calend like calendar school year were, you know, online. Same with the spring of 2020. And my summer courses over the summer. So actually being able to be physically back in class was a big step. You know, obviously I know COVID isn't the best right now. Uh, but, you know, we're vaccinated on campus. Uh, you know, they have stuff in to keep us generally safe. And we're testing for the first month at least. So, you know, easing period and everything. It felt good, though. To actually be able to learn in person. I don't know if this was just me, but over the pandemic, it was a lot harder to actually retain the material I learned online. Because it was a lot easier to kind of just tune out from what was going on in class when you're kind of in bed or not in a classroom setting. And things were just a lot harder mentally too during a lot of those times. So it was a lot easier to kind of just want to check out, you know, if that makes any sense. And for me, at least, I think I'm going to be much better at learning, even if my grades aren't necessarily as great. You know, not as many tests are pure take-home, so it's a bit more cramming rather than how you comply things. And I'm not really the best crammer. But the opportunity to really, I guess, learn more things that can apply um, fit into what we're doing now back a bit more. And I'm, I'm happy for the opportunity for that. Um, the only problem of classes being back so far is the Wi-Fi at the campus was not ready for like the overload of people. So first day of class, you know, you have to use, the press has to use Wi-Fi to pull up the slide decks and stuff. It's literally broken. And thanks for the host doc. The Wi-Fi across campus is broken. Professor can't pull up the slide deck. She comes in clutch and has a, a hotspot on her phone that she's able to use, which was a lot of, you know, respect on her part for having all these other facets prepared and the wi-fi was just garbage that day there was a lot of memes about it on online and stuff but we got through it and we're back at college and i'm excited for it schedule might be a bit you know weird going on forward but i'm happy to be back recording theta talk again can't wait to talk about today's primary topic at least everything said in the theta talk podcast is for informational educational and entertainment purposes only nothing in this podcast is financial advice and please talk with a professional investment advisor and do your own research before making any investment decisions. Welcome to Theta Talk, the show where you get premium for your time. I'm your host, Strat Becker, with a different background now on the live recording on Twitch.tv. Uh, it's literally just a plain closet. It happens when you gotta move. You don't always get everything you want. I'm gonna try to get some decor here eventually, but we're kind of just not there yet. But I'm happy to be back in general. And, I mean, like I said, I talked a little bit about classes, but the content in the class has actually been pretty good so far. I have a very business-heavy, you know, course load this semester. I have uh, a graduate corporate finance class. I have macroeconomics. I have um, econometrics and uh, business processes. 
it's a pretty wide array of, of items. And they're all pretty much related, I guess, to what I'm interested in. So I'm happy about it. The, the macro course I'm particularly excited for just because there's a lot of it that applies to what I like to do on this podcast. You know, I'm very into stocks, of course, but a lot of the conversations that we have on this podcast are much more based around, you know, macro topics that feed into these things. So being able to learn more about macro, apply it to what we're talking about here, is something I'm very excited for. And to the person that's asking if I already have any calculus this semester, I already took two calc courses at college. Uh, I've already finished my, my calc stuff. So we're good on that part. We're good there. And it's going to be okay. No more calculus here. Uh, but the macro course I'm excited for, the corporate finance cl- class for graduate school, very excited for, uh, econometrics I'm kind of excited for because I can you know visualize data and stuff more uh, and process larger amounts of data. You know, cool stuff about it. And business processes makes me think more about the decisions of uh, things that are going on. I guess meat of the podcast today, which is a quote from my professor in my macroeconomics class. And she said that the basis of good macro is strong micro. And I thought that was really interesting because I took microeconomics or intermediate microeconomics first. Uh, and I, I tend to actually agree with that because, for example, a lot of the inflationary items uh, that you hear in the news a lot, you know, is it in transitory stuff like that? The answers to those are a lot of times found within microeconomics and, and stuff you can learn in those textbooks. So, and there are, t- why is there a group of bikers outside my dorm window? I'm very perturbed by that. I'm sure maybe heard a little bit outdoors. They're, they're, don't worry, they're just, they're just vibing out, I think. Uh, but either way, you know, it kind of fits well with what I wanted to talk about today, the, the economics stuff, because macro is really what I want to go into more today, uh, talking about the evolving situation in China with their fiscal policy uh, and in particular, the Evergrande situation, or Evergrande, I think it is exactly. You know, we actually talked about Evergrande for the first time a month and a half ago on, on this podcast. It was my second episode, and it's the, the, the podcast episode is called, I'm just going to pull up the episode title just so I have it here. Not Ariane Grande to Timu, it's, it's Evergrande. It's a, it's a company in China, largest property developer in the country, over $300 billion in liabilities, you know how it is. Uh... The title then was, Is Evergrande the Black Swan? And it is my most viewed podcast episode by a lot, so uh, not capitalizing on that whatsoever. I say that in air quotes because obviously it's a hot topic right now, and I was at it, I was talking about it a little bit early. But, uh, you know, Evergrande has been something I've had an interest in, or at least tracking or, or keeping an eye on, really since early July. So the opportunity now to actually speak about it as it's become much more mainstream really in the past couple weeks, is pretty interesting, to say the least. And to Scott asking if I could explain the difference between the internal value of the yuan versus the external yuan used in, in world markets, I'm not as keen on China's monetary policy as I am on some of their you know, recent government regulationary trends and, and the Evergrande situation itself. So I'll potentially, I'll, I'll get back to you on that. I'll, I'll put it like that, you know? And... Am Howell saying the Suez Canal Shipping Company? It's not the Suez Canal Shipping Company. Evergrande is not that. You're, t- you're thinking about Evergiven. Similar names, different companies, just to be very clear about that. But the title of this episode is going to be, and it will be, Evergrande is Bankrupt. And I want to be clear, they're not technically bankrupt, right? But they are functionally insolvent 
at this point in time, and that's getting priced into the market. So you've seen a bit of you know additional volatility lately, at least abroad, um, and you know within their own markets. And, and some of that is involved with this. You know, they're late on many payments to suppliers. There was actually a big protest outside one of their their main buildings because employees weren't getting paid. Um, you know, they suspended interest on certain amounts of debt. Uh, many banks is, uh, and uh, Chinese government-controlled banks are being pressured into not uh, giving them money anymore. So there's there's a lot of problems here. They are functionally insolvent at this point in time, even if they're not technically bankrupt. You know, you've seen Fitch downgrade them a lot, saying that there's, you know, it's probable that the company, you know, goes bankrupt. They've seen a slew of credit downgrades racing to catch up with the trends. Uh, and, and it's really been rough. Uh, for the company, and it doesn't look like it's really going to get better. Someone else is asking, Scott, or sorry, not someone else, I, I'll correct myself there. Scott's asking, what do you think about China's developing country status in WTO and all the benefits they received despite being the world's second big, largest economy? I think it's interesting. You know, obviously there's imbalance here. You assume contradictory, con- contradictory items within having that status, right? If you consider the type of economy that, that they have, you know, they a lot of their backbone is still manufacturing and making rather than consuming. So maybe on that basis you could say, ah, well, it makes sense. But considering the scale that they're at and the rapid shift towards a consumerism-based economy, you could maybe argue that it isn't something that really makes as much sense either. Uh, but, you know, that aside, you know, what I think for this situation, at least for Evergrande, that isn't priced in at this point in time is whether it leads to broader, you know, default issues for the industry. Because if you have the biggest one within the industry, Evergrande, for property development, China go completely bust, right? They go, they, you know, they officially, you know, go for bankruptcy, they need to be restructured, whatever. How does that impact lenders that want, that are, you know, giving money or considering giving money to other property developers within China? And there's a lot of them. And I'm going to make a poll in the chat really quick. And it's going to be, do you know about Evergrande? Because I want to hear from the people watching right now. Do you know what Evergrande is, other than what I've said today? Have you heard about it before, basically, is, is what this is. And I'll put a yes vote myself because I've heard about it before. But, obviously, I want to see now, at least, that it's been within the news cycle a bit longer. Does anyone else really have paid attention to it? So leave the poll out there. It's a minute long. You can vote on it. Well, I pulled this right on Twitter and, and answer questions. Someone's asking, or not someone, uh, next text saying, What's China's economic system? Are they a hybrid? In a way, because they're, they have a rapidly growing middle class. They're shifting rapidly to consumerism as a driver to their economy, but they're still a major, major, major manufacturer. And that's been a driver force between, you know, that's, that's driven, you know, their, their pretty insane, you know, growth over time. Scott's asking is that, with that as well, what do you think about China's internal debt reaching 300% of GDP? A country's debt level, at least in my opinion, as someone that you know that, that looks at economics, is it something that matters so much as if they're growing more than their their interest rates? So, for example, I'm someone that's a very high proponent of you know deficit spending uh, to fuel you know government projects and stuff when interest rates are very low. So, for example, if you have a, if you can do a ten year project that will yield long term, you know, two percent plus uh, annual you know profit, and the interest on the debt you can get for it's under two percent. That's a project that I'd want to take, you know, not just MPV for current cash flows, but you're getting economic profit by taking out debt in that situation. So I just have my opinions of that. Someone else is also asking, why is the ticker for Evergrande so long? Because it's on OTC markets, not listening to us. I think if you're looking for it as well, it's just 
three three it's by numbers for hong kong sometimes so it's just three 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 thousand three hundred thirty three as well you can type in instead of the otc markets one uh to find the ticker and it pulls over and 50 percent said they knew uh about evergrande beforehand 50 percent didn't so I think that part of about half of people that I have watching, not knowing what it was, you know, beforehand, other than what we've really talked about on stream, kind of says a lot in a way, right? Because this is something that could potentially be very big, um, you know, but most, a lot of people have no idea at all what it is or, or know very, very little, right? And obviously, I want to be very clear when I say this, that, uh, Evergrande obviously isn't the first one to go bankrupt, and I'm going to go into this thread on Twitter for a second that really goes into showing how big this industry is, uh, and it alone wouldn't cause, you know, let's say a, like a major economic, you know, crisis. There, there has to be other factors in play. It's not just, oh, Evergrande goes bankrupt, everything's over, game, world, world's over, right? I, I hope that makes some clearing sense, as Next Tech asks, if inflation makes current debt cheaper, so inflation would heavily reduce current debt, that is correct, for example, if you have a mortgage on your house at 2% annual and inflation is 2.5%, you're essentially having, you know, an economic profit from that because the real interest rate on your on your debt in that case, on your mortgage, is negative 0.5% because the inflation rate's outpacing the debt. So you are correct about that. You are completely correct about that next sec. But I want to pull this straight about Evergrande and, and more broadly the China economic thing. It's, it's by this guy called Last Bear Stan. He makes a lot of good actual threads covering, you know, debt, uh, foreign markets, and, and he's actually been paying pretty decent attention to this stuff for a while. So when he posts threads, they're pretty interesting to read and, and get a grasp of. And and his headline for this is, uh, you know, he he is someone that, that believes there is a potential risk, not certain at all, uh, that contagion in the property section, which means, you know, Evergrande goes bust, and the issue isn't just contained to, like, let's say the company itself. It spreads throughout the sector, could spread throughout, you know, banks and, and cause, you know, many issues. Uh, and he highlights, importantly, that this has been, you know, underway for a while. This isn't like a, a brand, brand new phenomenon, you know? Obviously, Evergrande is the biggest. It's the one everyone's starting to talk about now. But like he accurately says, it's not, you know, unique. Or is it the first uh, of, it, of companies that have faced these things? And obviously... You know, it isn't even the first default. You know, he highlights, you know, China Fortune Land Development, which had $61 billion in liabilities, defaulted in January. And you could see, oh, here on loading image, why? Oh, no, my Wi-Fi died. My Wi-Fi died. What the f No! My Wi-Fi died! My Wi-Fi died as I'm recording. Oh, God. The stream. No, 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 no. College, are you serious? No! Oh, God! I swear to God, why? Why does this happen? I swear! I swear to God! I swear to God, why? Why do you do this? I swear. I swear, I'm sorry. I want, I want to clarify this. The Ethernet ports are broken. So for anyone that's laughing at me in this podcast recording about why, like, oh, yeah, I should use Ethernet and stuff. I can't, because they don't work. I tried. We have to put in a work order to fix the Ethernet ports because they came broken for us. And it's very, very, you know, it's college. Not everything here is perfect. And I am I, I'm personally sorry. And I hope you all on the live stream can hear me again. 
Why? The only time this happens is literally while I'm recording my podcast. You know, stuff happens as always a crisis. You know, right? So next texting broke college quit Twitch, Twitch Prime to this guy. Yeah, Twitch Prime we pay off my student loans, you know? Pay more for Ethernet. I, I don't pay for the Ethernet ports, man. It comes with the department at the college. They have to fix it if it's broken. I can't. And we have to put in a work order because it came broken. And it's very sad. So why don't we get back into what I was talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, as you can see on the screen, uh, for those that are watching this live recording, like I was trying to say before my internet cut out, is that uh, China La Fortune Land Development is actually the first company within the sector that really saw a default. And that was over half a year ago. This was in January. You know? They they obviously went kaplut. You can see their, their bonds and their stock price on the screen right now, right? You know, importantly from that... Uh, the largest insurer in China took a 5.5 billion loss from this bankruptcy in the first half loss, right? So this is just one company that does this as a whole cast of these that are potentially risky. You can see why there might be an issue, right? You have this one that's a 10, 10 billion liabilities, and you can see the pace of the credit decline. Most of these bonds weren't trading very high, right? They're trading, you know, as we got into the middle of this year, a little over... Well, Actually, no, they're they're pretty high. Sorry, they're like about ninety cents, a little bit low ninety cents, right? So in, in general, you know, they were trading slightly below their you know initial par, but not too much. And then you see this complete breakdown in the bond prices as you get into you know end of June, and especially as you get through August, right? You look at Yuzo here, another one, completed down in, in late March from trading above par. To trading at you know 20 cents discounted and it's basically held that since with some volatility you know you look at uh Sichuan, they were basically at like you know around 90 through the first third of the year and now they're trading at 25 cents on the dollar on their bonds that is bad like really bad you know and their stock price went from you know five yuan all the way down to two right and that two and a quarter or two and a half right now right Evergrande itself is the one that everyone's talking about now in the media, right? You know, they obviously were trading not really too hotly. They had this weird September thing last year that everyone saw, but they were trading around 80 cents. This completely collapsed starting in June. You can see the trend with the stock price capitulating as well. It goes from 80 cents to, to on the dollar all the way down to, you know, under 30 cents on the dollar. 29 right now, right? You, you know, it literally took... Nine months from this first scare thing back here in last September, it was pretty stable. And then you just see this crumble in three months, and the company's functionally insolvent. That's why the title of this podcast is Evergrande is Bankrupt, by the way. Because it is, in semblance, bankrupt. Uh, or functionally insolvent. Even though it's not technically filed for bankruptcy yet. You know, we, we talked about how many things they're actually late on paying right now, even payroll. Functionally, they, they can't really hold things together. But you go through this whole list, you see that all these other companies, very similar trends. You know, this is another major developer in China. Its bonds, even through the start of Evergrande's deterioration, were trading just fine. Over 90 cents in the dollar. Very, very strong. Completely kills itself off within two months. From 95 cents in the dollar to under 60 cents in the dollar. No signs 
that they would have even been distressed until two months ago. And this crumbles apart. And these are bonds that are maturing in next year, right? So they're not like super long to maturity. You know, this, this shows pretty clearly the amount of these that are crumbling that Evergrande itself, despite its size, isn't unique in, in this situation, right? And, and nor is it the first, to keep in mind. So defaults are really coming off. And a lot of the recent ones in these sell-offs, you know, the, the abruptness and, and sharpness of it has been very pronounced. Their potential financial stress for these companies was not very clear until very, very recently. It, and it obviously is important to note, as this person in this thread does, that it is a chain like chain reaction. This this isn't just you know a coincidence. It's much more causal, you know, because like I talked about a little bit earlier before I opened this thread, let's say developer defaults, lenders will you know restrict credit more to their peers and and you know companies very similar because they don't want to risk losing more money, right? So that means that those companies that are still surviving have a hard time to access capital. That makes it hard for them to operate. And then they also face issues. And it's just a cycle that goes on and on and on. And, and the question is that, that this person also very clearly points out, you know, uh, other than what developers could also face risks, is could this spill out in, into the bank sector? You know, if there are enough losses taken through, you know, what's going on here, it could be a, a much more substantial issue, you know? Because it, it, let's say there's massive losses taken, a bank starts to waver, right? Obviously, it's, you know, just this is a hypothetical, right? That could cause much more issues across, you know, other sectors. So it's really about whether this can be contained, you know? Rather than, oh, can, can Evergrande, like, not go bankrupt, right? I, I think that's an important note to really note about, you know, the contagion risk and everything that's going on within the, the sector and, you know, the, the risk of, of any spillover, right? I think that's step one, I guess, in the discussion of it that, that's pretty important to discuss. And then there's two other things that I think for Evergrande specifically are important to keep in mind. The first one being that one of their biggest sources of liquidity isn't, you know, just getting money from loans, which are harder for them to do, uh, as banks have restricted lending to the company. It's from getting deposits on uncompleted projects. Potential home buyers or people that are trying to buy a home will put a deposit, basically a down payment on an, an uncomplete project uh, that Evergrande is doing, and they'll get the home when it's done. Right now, this is a great New York Times article that really discusses more of this as well. It's a great one that was published uh, by Alexander Stevenson and Cowley uh, a couple days ago on the 10th. It says, you know, pretty bluntly, that there are over 800 projects totaling 1.2 million housing units, at least, that remain paid for the deposits and uncomplete at this point in time. Now, if you extrapolate and just take the median price for, like, you know, single-family, you know, units and stuff, which are over a million dollars a piece, the amount of unfinished, you know, assets there is really, really crazy. Like, if, if I pull up Desmos right now, right, like a calculator that you can get on your browser, and you do one, two million, right? Am I doing this wrong? Oh, it does. Okay. 
So it's 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, million. Times it by one, that's 1,000. I think it's also a million, right? 10 plus 12 zeros. I think that's over a trillion dollars. It's, it's, a, it's either 100 billion or 12, or 12 trillion. I, I'm not really... I, I gotta kind of think this out loud a little bit. It'd be 10, 100,000, 10,000, 100,000, 4, 1, 2, 3, 7. So that's 100 million. Yeah, it's, it's over a trillion dollars. Okay. I wasn't insane when I, when I first thought that out. So here is the amount of money on the line, right? And that means in a situation like that, well, if Evergrande goes bankrupt, those, those people that put down their deposits for those, their homes aren't necessarily going to get their money back for the homes that they never get, that they, they put a deposit down for, right? So the other issue within that is if that happens and then everyone sees, you know, all these other companies showing signs of stress, consumers would feel less confident in going out to buy a pre-made home. Or, you know, a home that isn't made yet, right, from a property developer because they, they're worried that it'll happen to them again or that they, they know it's going to happen to it could happen to them as well. That dries up a major source of liquidity for these companies. That feeds into a pretty negative cycle. Tim is saying that the uh, Communist Party will just buy them out. Well, I think this is the issue, right? Obviously, I'm going to get into this more down the line. I have a lot of notes written down for this stuff today, at least, is that obviously... The government, you know, could very easily step in and try to, you know, to just completely cut off any contagion, right? However, they realize the risk from the leverage that's going on within their economy in many major industries, right? And they want to let companies that are engaged in these leverage activities fail. They don't want to bail out these businesses because if they do, they'll give this, the green light, basically, to other people that it's okay to engage in this risky and, and dangerous business behavior because the government has their back, right? And that means that the scale of future problems could really, you know, wind up. And, and you know, that's why they let, for example, the first company go down. That's why, despite the fact that Evergrande's CEO is pretty high-ranking within, you know, the Communist Party ranks, not as a politician, but within the social circles and such, they might still let it go anyways. The question is, you know, obviously how much can they do to contain and, you know, they obviously can do a lot at the end of the day. You know, I, I'm no, you know, expert on the, the government there at all. So I'm not going to comment on what exactly they, they could do. But they have a lot of, you know, obviously they have tools that they can use. And the question is, A, would they actually step in and, you know, kind of reverse course on their messaging to bail out the company if it, before it goes under or other companies? Or B, will they let it go on purpose to try to enforce what they're doing and then just try to contain it? There's, there's kind of, it's, it's not purely a binary course of action that they have, but there's a couple, you know, I guess, big options with them, right? The second particular point about Evergrande that kind of fits into the situation is that China's broader economy is facing substantial pressure right now. You know, from, from Delta variants, obviously responsible for a good amount of it. But there's pressure there, nonetheless. A lot of ports, especially major ports, may at least partially closed because of the impacts right now. And that's been one of the driving catalysts for sea freight rates, which I'm sure everyone's heard about, actually soaring, you know, the New York, to Shanghai, New York being over 20,000, stuff like that, right? B, 
big stuff going on there that can cause those rates to go up. Obviously, I have a note here in my notes that says, see Zim, you know, Zim integrated shipping stock for the impact it's having. Their stocks literally exploded upwards. But, you know, if you're focusing not just on shipping, the impacts are also real. Manufacturing PMI for China uh, in August was weaker than expected at 50.1, right? Keep in mind for PMI, below 50 is shrinking, above 50 is growing. New orders were below 50, though, and new export orders were also below 50. So the issues aren't, you know, just very concentrated in manufacturing, you know, pure, right? Also to note, surface PMI for China, 47.5 for the non-manufacturing PMI. Contraction. So the economy itself is facing hurdles right now as these companies, uh, you know, that are very leveraged are, are facing, you know, very serious liquidity issues, right? What happens when the economy is shrinking? Credit tends to, you know, from lenders, tighten because there's heightened risk. Obviously, you know, that's, you know, modern economic theory might destroy that in a way, but you get what I mean. Usually the government comes in to, you know, stimulate and, and force money into the economy, but from lending themselves, you know, it can be a bit different. And to Rafflecopter, who just came to the chat saying that they're late, what slide are we on? Welcome to the podcast recording. I hope you're doing well. We're, we're on the part of talking about China's broader economy. And now we're flipping over to the next part of what I was going to talk about. So welcome. In my opinion, at least though, with this, I think there's more links than you'd really think normally between, you know, the ties that you can draw from some of the, you know, corporate regulation actions that the, you know, Communist Party in China is taking and, you know, attempts that they, they're making to combat, you know, other issues within the country, right? I don't think a lot of these things are cracked down, such as, like, you know, trying to let these, lever- yeah, we're talking, we're talking about China, so Rafflecopter, so yes, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, it's the, the you know, the, the primary political party in China. You know, a lot of these things, like letting potentially, you know, leveraged companies go bust because they don't want to incentivize, you know, bad business behavior to things like banning video games for children under 18, other than for an hour a day on, you know, weekends and holidays, might not just be, oh, you know, they just want to increase control. There's other things that are going on with the country other than just, like, pure economics or pure control, that could be influencing things. And that makes the situation a lot more complicated, obviously. For example, in my opinion, the ban on video games for minors, other than an hour a week, or hour a day, sorry, on weekday on weekends and holidays, could be the government doing something on purpose to restrict the habits of, of current kids from playing video games as much as they become adults. So that they be, you know, they can end up being more productive workers and work more, you know, and, and be let, like, I'm not necessarily addicted, but have video games not really be part of their life as much so they can work more. The reason behind that, of course, to make up for their demographic shortfall, you know, because their demographic is really, really bad. So they need to try to offset that in ways. How can they offset that? Forcibly increase the productivity uh, of younger people by, you know, making them ingrained as the girl to play less video games, Right. Obviously, it's not something that you could really think of, oh, this is an end-all, be-all, this will fix all their problems. But it's, you know, a shortfall that you could argue, you know, if you're thinking about it, you can make an argument that that might be one of the reasons why they're doing it. I'm not saying it is. That's just my opinion from, you know, I guess you're you know, taking into account other factors, right? The concern, at least I have drawing it back to Evergrande, isn't that they go bankrupt, Right. You know, considering all these actions the government's taking about regulations and such uh, and whatnot. My concern isn't that they go bankrupt because even, you know, the government may choose to bail them out in some sort of way or 
you know, they might choose, oh, we can't, you know, promote this behavior within businesses, right? However, some sort of insolvency uh, is increasingly priced in, right? We talked about Fitch, S&P, Moody's, everyone's downgrading the credit ratings on this, right? You know, their current liabilities, they're struggling to pay. They had, you know, payroll issues, you know, there's protests outside one of their headquarters buildings over unpaid wages, you know, they're struggling to pay suppliers, you know, contractors, they suspended interest on some of their bonds, right? Those, that's been a trend. You know, their functional insolvency has become increasingly apparent, right? And, you know, that's that's something that's been increasingly, you know, known to the public, you know, general investing, finance, you know, people over the past couple of weeks has gained more media coverage, right? The concern is whether or not it ends up being contained or it spills over you know, through the rest of the property development sector as, you know, contagion fears spread through the sector. You've seen the bonds prices that we showed earlier. Uh, and, you know, whether or not it doesn't just spread through those, but also through creditors, you know, restricting credit, not just to the sector, but other things that might they might consider leverage, you know, home buyers, maybe not wanting to put down deposits on unfinished homes anymore, you know, suppliers, you know, not wanting to work with leverage things, etc. right? Those people, you know, obviously, if Evergrande goes bankrupt over $300 billion in liabilities, those groups will be out of a lot of money if the company goes bust, right? And that could fuel, you know, increased conservatism on, on you know, how, how you're handling money or how people or groups or companies handle money, right? That obviously is an issue because then, you know, you can create a self-fulfilling prophecy, basically, where the, the cycle of... You know, one company goes insolvent, people lose money, so they tighten up because they don't want to lose their own money even more, causes another firm to go bust, so on and so on, right? So that that is, you know, a, a real thing to keep an eye on, right? And I do think that the risk of tightening credit in that situation, you know, could obviously be very bad for many leveraged companies within the sector. And in that case, you know, you could show the broader bad debt market, broader economy, potentially face issues if banks start lending less, people start spending less because they're scared. Hallmarks of an economic slowdown, right? Combined with the Delta variant right now, obviously even that's you know more of a short-term thing. An unexpected slowdown in the China economy for a situation like that would obviously not be good, you know, for the global economy, right? Obviously, the, you know, the government there will probably act very aggressively to try to combat against that. But nonetheless, it's a real issue that, that, you know, if that occurs in that cycle, it would have to be a pretty significant concern, right? You're talking about, you know, for example, uh, one of the, the biggest bad debt firms in the country took a $16 billion loss in 2020. Those losses become more widespread, much bigger issue than just one company, right? Then you have to look at it much, much more seriously. You know, I, I have this here written in my notes that obviously, you know, the government wouldn't want that to happen. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, Evergrande CEO is pretty high up in the social ranks of the, the government party, right? But like I've mentioned a lot through this, you know, recording at this point, I'm kind of like camera down on it uh, in a way, you know, they don't necessarily want to bail out these companies because they don't want to incentivize leverage like that to a way where you can't get it back. You know, and, and right now they're encouraging, you know, banks that they have, you know, controlling stakes and stuff. To restrict lending to Evergrande. So that's kind of a sign in a way, right? You know, I think this whole situation that we're talking about, you combine it with the crackdown attitude on tech and stuff, for example, 
the environment is uncertain is the number one takeaway from it, right? Does Evergrande go go bankrupt like, you know, next week and it spills over and crashes their economy, global economy goes, you know, faces a lot of struggles? Very unlikely, but you don't know, right? Does Evergrande go bust and they do everything they can to just contain exactly that company and they bail out any firms that took losses on it? Also possible, right? Does, you know, they do they see some sort of slowdown and that can kind of trick around? Also possibility, right? Or does nothing really go wrong? Somehow, you know, they just bail out the Evergrande, things go on as normal, right? Also a possibility. However, it's uncertain, right? We don't know. And there's a lot of uncertainty in the air surrounding what that eventual outcome could be. And if there's one thing that the market doesn't like, it's uncertainty. Because uncertainty bodes risk, right? If you're less certain about an outcome, there's more variables that come into play to screw up your thesis. So as investors here in America, which is my primary you know, viewing base, thank you to Finland for being number two. I really appreciate all the Finnish investors that uh, enjoy Theta Talk. You know, I didn't know the Finns were really that much into selling options and collecting Theta, but I hope I'm giving you a premium of your time as well. Regardless, primarily you know, for my US audience, um, you know, but for international audiences as well that aren't in China, even if we don't know what happens, because there's uncertainty, it's important to monitor the developments pretty carefully, right? Even if you're long term, right? Like, like for example, someone was talking about, like you know on Twitter, you know they're what, what's everyone doing with the you know the market you know facing these issues right now, right? Like what are you selling? Or what are you buying? Or whatever. Like, I think that's probably one of the bad things about FinTwit is like everyone's so focused on the now when at the end of the day things are like decades down the line. You know, I replied to someone. I said, you know, uh, I'm holding on to everything I own for the long term, decades out. Buy things, drop off into correction. For example, that was my first part of explaining my own sentiment towards the markets, right? Uh, Egri, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce this chatter's name, but someone in the chat named uh, Egri Tor is saying, China's willingness to do stuff is very intimidating. Yeah, you can make that argument. But the uncertainty over what China might do in this situation is what bodes market risk, right? We don't know what they're going to do, which means there's uncertainty in how you have to price it, right? And, you know, obviously it's much more, it's much more quantitative stuff, but it involves pricing. So you can make an argument, for example, that the reason U.S. markets are pulling back more in this week is because this stuff around Evergrande or, you know, China's economic situation has become much more public, right? It's become much more mainstream, much more people know about it. And there's uncertainty on what's going to happen, right? And uncertainty is something the market doesn't like. So even though it's a baby self, we're literally talking like less than 2% or like 2% or something max, right? The uncertainty from that makes people not like things. You know We're in a very, very long time without a correction. Corrections are normal. They happen a lot, right? The fact that we're literally like all year, like nothing, just basically straight up every dip bought instantly isn't necessarily like a perfect thing, right? There's problems with that in its own right. Um... This is something that could, you know, the uncertainty can cause a correction, but corrections happen all the time, and they're not something to really panic over themselves. The question is, is this just a correction? Is there other uncertainties here or, or variables that we need to pay closer attention to to protect ourselves and our own savings looking long-term, stuff like that, right? The same aggro person saying that J-Pal is busy fighting corrections, the money printer, papering over problems works 100% of the time. Kicking cans down the road doesn't always work, in my opinion, at least. You know, 
but I'm kind of going around in circles a little bit, but my point stands, right? We don't know fully what's going to happen. That uncertainty bodes, you know, risk. Risk is priced into the markets by, you know, discounting a little bit until an outcome's resolved, right? Pretty reasonable stuff, if you really think about it. Obviously, China stocks are much more beat up. You know, you're looking at stocks that are down over 20% there to the U.S. is being, like, you know, S&P is being down like 2%, right? So it's kind of, I'm kind of biased when I'm saying that because the U.S. has seen like a baby sell-off. But it's something to monitor, even if we don't know the exact outcome. I do think it is a real risk, personally, for much bigger, you know, economic problems within China. And obviously, you know, probably the biggest macro risk to America, in a way, is a sudden unexpected slowdown in China's economy right now. I think because I think the U.S. economy is on a pretty good footing, um, you know, growing at a pretty good pace. We have a lot, a lot of things that potentially could give us terminal growth rate on our economy right now, a bit above two percent for some time. You know, like at least you know more than three, four years, which would be pretty big for the long term. But let's say China all of a sudden you know slams the brakes, goes from six percent growth a year down to like two or one, right? That would be a recession, but the sudden slowdown in their growth would have impacts i think that's something to keep an eye on obviously we don't know what's going to happen but that's why we have to keep an eye on it because we don't know so we have to keep an eye and watch developments to get better information on what could end up happening and that's the kind of the whole point of this podcast today this episode is to kind of bring more light to the situation there in a way bring more discussion about it right i, I think one of the great things with this chat is we can ask questions about this stuff like we got to find out half of the people watching this right now on the stream didn't know anything about really Evergrande until after, you know, I'd started talking about it here, right? So if there's something that can have a pretty material impact, you know, at least in the short run, on your, your savings stuff, right? Or, or for, you know, you, you know, our own economy, things kind of go out of hand, but half of the people didn't even know about it, you know, until a couple weeks ago. That means it's something worth talking about, right? Even if, let's say, and this is definitely a possibility, nothing ends up happening from this, absolutely nothing. The fact that you would have known about it anyways and been able to, you know, have the knowledge to talk about it, be safe, and stay up to date would make you a lot safer than if you didn't know about it at all. And then the scenario is that, you know, creates a big, big problem. And then you're kind of caught flat-footed because you don't understand why this is happening and, and you're stuck behind, right? That's just my idea. You know, I'm happy to talk about this stuff and I'm happy I can have a live audience to talk about this with. That's the end of this episode of Today to Talk. I want to thank you all for watching. I hope I gave you some premium for your time today. And we'll catch you next time. Uh, I don't have a full schedule up for this yet. This should be up Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern as the publication time. My actual recording time isn't finalized yet, so the actual upload date uh, may change going forward. But I'm going to try to keep these uploaded at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. Or a.m. Eastern time. I'm sorry. If you like the podcast, follow it on Spotify for those... Um, it is on Spotify right now. If you want to follow on Apple Podcasts, do that as well. It's data talk on both those platforms. If you want to be a part of the live discussion, come to twitch.tv slash strapbuckers. It's in the description of the podcast. You can come here and participate in these discussions live. It's really fun. I get. I love to see your inputs and your questions live because it makes us different in a way, right? We're, you know, we're not just speaking to avoid and then putting out there. I'm getting to say these things, but at the same time, see what other people are thinking and engage with them live. And that comes out as a finished product. And I'm you know, pretty grateful for that. I think it's a really good way to facilitate discussion and make an end result, uh, an end product that's better than if it was just unchallenged, right? But I want to thank you all for doing this today, coming along, taking a listen. 
and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Take care.